I mean, frankly, the gay people were getting laid a whole lot more than, than I was. <laughs> and they were having a lot more fun. It just seemed like, wow, these people are, uh, they're really living. And, um, and then all of a sudden there was this huge horribleness. Across the street from where we were living, there was a barber, a kind of hair salon. And my, my roommate, I had a really close friend uh, who was my roommate in this house, Jimmy Ilson. And he had like super curly hair. He wasn't black, but he kind of had the same hair as black people. And so there was a black guy at this hair salon who became Jimmy's friend because Jimmy would go to get his hair cut. He said, I have to go to someone who knows how to cut black people's hair. And, uh, and then he was like one of the first people that, that died that we, we did forever met, you know, from AIDS. And, but it was all around us and it was, it was pretty gruesome. How, how would you describe that as the social phenomena? Was it happening so frequently that? Well, it, it, it started like a mystery. Nobody knew what was happening, but San Francisco was pretty much ground zero, you know? So, uh, and it had such a stigma to it because gay, you know, in San Francisco, even in San Francisco, it wasn't like there were. San Francisco had become a mecca for gays, but there were a lot of people who still resented that, you know? And I mean, for, for one thing, the gays, they tended to not have many kids and they tended a lot of them to be professionals. So they had a lot of money. And so they were driving up the rents, you know, and it, it, it was, you know, nothing like now the tech, the tech people have completely ruined this place, you know, but, uh, but or remade it let's put it that way from it depends how you look at it yes but from the point of view of artists and people who can't afford to live here anymore they've ruined it and um but the gays you know the gays to some degree were beginning you know that kind of a trend so there was a, a stigma against gay people not for being gay but for their you know it all kind of uh bl bled together you know, there was also a stigma against gay people being gay. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I was, I was tolerant and, you know, I mean, I had friends who were gay and it was okay, you know. And then this AIDS thing, you know, like, changed everything because there were all these, like, gay bathhouses and things where people would just go have anonymous sex and it was, it was spreading the disease like wildfire, you know. So then they started closing all the bathhouses and... Uh, and you know, I mean, it was, it was pretty horrible. I was not in that community, so it didn't affect me personally, you know, but we did, you know, like this hairdresser guy, you know, it's like, wow, he died really. And yeah, it was, it was there. It was, a, it was a, th a social phenomenon at the time. People you knew and that you had relationships with were passing away from, from AIDS. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't my community, but it was my neighbors. Wow. It was in the news, you know. It was just in the, on the radio and on the TV. And, it, you know, I mean, it was an explosion of disease. And it took everybody by surprise. And, you know, then there were, like, you know, news from other parts of the country where it was, you know, all the religious people were going, it's, it's God curse on the gays. And yeah. So it was this huge social phenomenon that, that, uh, polarized people quite a bit. So you say even even in San Francisco, there was still like this kind of anti-gay culture at the time. How did that shift? Did you know, what was the, 
I don't know if you had to look back, like what was it that made it shift to kind of being almost integrated into the, the normalcy of, of the way things are? I think it was the activism, you know, of the gays. And, you know, the whole thing with Harvey Milk made a huge impact. You know, when that, that whole Dan White thing uh, happened, uh, you know, where he went and shot the mayor and he shot the supervisor, Harvey Milk, and, you know, it, it, it basically laid bare this dichotomy between the traditional conservative working white people and the the kind of art community and the, the, the community of tolerance, you know, is like, uh, I mean, all of a sudden this horrible thing happened and, and it, you know, we could see this kind of stupidity that existed in the world uh, an intolerance and hatred of the other and and so it it, it I think that might have been a, a kind of a major turning point where people kind of started going okay like like when I did that little report when I was nine years old on the hippies and I just realized these are just people you know they're like us everybody's slightly no but you can't pigeonhole somebody because of how they look or how they act and you know i think maybe it it it, it kind of pointed a little finger at how we're being intolerant here mm. you know it was just cut and dry back then you know, there's gays and there's straights you know and then the uh, you know people started realizing how you know we just all like pleasure you know, so there's many, lots of different ways to have it. Once we got a Judeo-Christian, they once that's this took over, the you know, uh, then all of a sudden we all had to have this moral uh, code that we lived by, and it's it's a good way to control people. You know, it's like it really has worked for thousands of years to keep people from having fun. You know, it's it's worked really well. Like we went from being pagans to being Christians and Jews and Muslims. Dude. And uh, the pagans had like all these gods and the gods were like wild, you know, great having sex and, you know, adventures. And, and those were the gods that people actually believed in and taught their kids about. And then this whole like morality came in and everybody was controlled but and so now we we still have that we still have this christianity uh but at heart we're all still pagans you know and we're all still like want to have joy and fun and and we have this like marvel universe you know with all these gods these these godlike characters that people are really like focused on you know and and they're all just like the pagan gods. In fact, like Thor is even one of them. That's you know? right. Uh, you know, it, it's like that. It's still in us. You know, we're still we haven't changed a whole lot. We've just had this kind of kind of thumb pushed down on us for a long time. Where you where you push down, uh, something rises yeah, up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I guess we were kind of going through like how you. How you got into performing, kind of as a tangential. Camp Win a Rainbow. Wavy Gravy had me come up and teach the kids 
bubbles. But when I was there, they told me that that year was the first year they'd had what they called experimental adult camp, where uh, adults could come. Like there's a week where they're building the camp and they're putting up all the teepees and they're kind of getting it all ready for the kids. And all the people who are working at the camp are teaching each other all their different art forms and, and performance skills. And they, they decided to open that up to, you know, adults who want to come and have all the fun that kids get to have at camp and fornicate if they want to. They don't have to, you know, but it's all adults. There's no kids and they're doing all the same stuff, learning unicycle and tightrope and acting and drama and improvisational theater and music and going swimming in the lake and hiking around and uh, hanging out with each other and, you know, eating good food. And uh, so the next year I signed up and I went to experimental adult camp and I spent a lot more time on stage and I acted in the play uh, Snow White and the Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, and, uh, and, and I learned, you know, Wavy taught improv theater and, uh, you know, I made a, I made a musical instrument, a shake array, you know, like a big gourd with all these beads on it that goes shuka, shuka, shuka. And, you know, I, I, it was just super fun. And I went, so I went for six years, I went to this thing and it really helped me learn how to be on stage a lot. Took clowning classes and took clowning class. Yeah. Yeah. We had to, we took a falling class and there was also, we did a lot of, uh, different, um, like learning how to stretch and, and take care of your body. Cause that's important for circus falling, and yeah, performing, being right? physical. Yeah. You'd wake up in the morning, you'd hear the con, the conk wavy would blow the conk and we would wake up and we, would uh, have go to the kitchen and have hot chocolate. And then we'd all come and there'd be like an hour of, of stretching or capoeira or yoga or whatever. And then uh, everybody would go have a class and you could pick whichever class you wanted to go to. Huh. J uh, juggling, uh, tightrope walking, uh, stilt walking, unicycle riding, trapeze, music, whatever, whatever you wanted to do. And so the class would be an hour and then we'd all come back to the stage and all the people who took the class would get on stage and perform the thing they just learned. Wow. So if you were the, the first day you'd ever learn juggling, you would take a class and then you'd get on stage and perform. And something magical happens when you're on stage performing in front of other people. You get much better, much faster. Huh. I wonder it's, what that it's, is. It's magic. I don't know. It's just something about performing. That the more you do it, the better you get, the much faster you get. And so they knew that. And so they, you'd get on stage immediately after, even if you dropped all your juggling balls over and over again, it was okay. You'd get clapped, people clap, you did your thing. The next person would do theirs. And, uh, you know, after 10 days of being at camp, you, you'd learn stuff, you know? So, so you do a class, you'd perform, do another class, perform, and there'd be a big lunch. And then in the afternoon, there'd be a, you know, like big classes that we'd all do together. Like we'd all do this improv acting class with Wavy and, or we'd all go to the lake and just play in the lake and swim. And they eventually, somebody donated one of those giant water slides that they have at the water parks. You oh know, yeah, for sure. Big fancy water slides and they, they put it up at the lake, you know, and, uh, uh, there was a raft, George raft. It was the, the lake was called Veronica Lake. <laughs> It's amazing. 
I could see uh, the adults almost having more fun than the kids. Yeah, oh, it, it, camp is is heaven. It's heaven. I would recommend it. It's still there. It still happens. To this day. Yeah, yeah. You can go to adult camp still. Camp Winter Rainbow. Okay. Yeah, wow. yeah. Wild. I highly recommend it. And no, nobody got booed off stage for being terrible, or was there? Oh, God, no. Okay. <laughs> no, no. No, it's this total support. Yeah, and then, like, at night, there'd always be a show or a dance. And so, like, there'd be one night where all the the artists who were there as camp counts, you know, like, teachers... One night they'd all do something that they didn't that wasn't their specialty, you know. So if they were a a musician, they would juggle, or if you know, vice versa. Oh man! And and then another night, like they people would do what they really do. Another night they'd bring in a band, you know, and oh, we'd all man. dance, and uh, so there'd be like some big thing every night, big show, and then there'd be this play, like the one I was in, Snow White and the Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, you know, would be people would be working on the play during the whole camp, and then on the last night they'd perform the play. Huh? And it was always a huge success. It sounds like it almost like unlocks. It's almost therapeutic because it just kind of makes you get outside of. It's not almost therapeutic. It's totally therapeutic. You know, I mean, it it, it it's it's just positivity. You know, and b- believing in yourself and believing that having fun leads to learning and knowledge and success you know like we need more of that in our life today that's yeah uh, i mean that's what i've always done i didn't do it on purpose but you know i've always been driven to have fun and i found this thing with bubbles and it was fun and it's still fun it's more fun now than it ever was still fun today for you even after like all these you know performances i mean i've now i'm at the height of the i'm touring the world playing in front of in beautiful beautiful theaters all over the world and I was like, God, it's all because of camp. Nothing, none of this would have happened if A, I hadn't had that professor, Alan Capro, who, who taught, who invented happenings and got me out on the street blowing bubbles saying this was a happening. And then I'd met Wavy Gravy and gone to camp. And, you know, it's like the, he was all about having fun, you know, just follow your bliss, follow where your, your, your heart leads you to what's fun, you know, and you'll, you, you, you can't lose. I remember reading these articles about him and that presidential campaign. He like elected a pig for president. <laughs> what a what a comedian. He uh, when they would have a rally for their you know a campaign event, they'd all they'd drive up in their big bus that said nobody for president, and then they'd all get out wearing suits and everything, and and then they're you know they they'd be on stage and they the whole audience would be in the room and they say okay and nobody. He's going to come and, you know, everybody, you know, welcome nobody to the stage and everybody would applaud. And then somebody would walk up to the podium and take one of those wind up teeth things, you know, those little yeah, clacking yeah, yeah, wind yeah, up yeah. teeth and they'd wind it up and put it on the podium. <laughs> oh that was the speech by, by nobody. nobody. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I saw a few clips of him from the, from the footage uh, back in that time. And it was like, he, I think he was rallying the crowd up and he said you know who's gonna help you nobody (laughs) (laughs) who should have this much power nobody (laughs) when you're at camp and you've got that kind of supportive environment on stage was it the same when you started performing out in the world where the the audience could boo you off the stage um you know i mean out in the world was not camp it was not like we were all because in camp the whole audience was also performers you know they were all supportive uh you know I doing kids birthday parties 
uh, you know, kids are totally honest. If they don't like it, you know, they'll go, this is boring, you know, and that's, that's happened. I always had a, like, one of the things I did was squirt bubbles with a squirt gun, you know? So if some kid said, this is boring, I'd just pull out my squirt Spray gun and him. let them have it, you know? It's like, is it still boring? <laughs> you water, waterboarding children. <laughs> Water boring. Uh, um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the kids love squirt guns, so it was never a problem. And then, you know, sometimes the, the kids would just jump up and start popping all the bubbles and... You know, so then I'd, I'd say, oh, could you point at your mother or father? And then they'd point, and then I'd squirt the mother or father and say, you know, could you do something about your kid? I saw that the last show. You, there was a guy who had a cell phone. You, you oh, squirted him yeah. with a water gun. I, I usually squirt somebody. That's amazing, you know, man. If I, somebody says or does something. What are some differences between performing for children and per performing for adults? Do you notice a massive change in your style of performance? No, massive. I don't know about massive. I mean, like, I don't get to perform just for adults that often. And it does happen. And uh, so I improvise a lot when I'm performing. Every show is different. And, you know, the bubble tricks are the bubble tricks. Sometimes I invent something new on stage. But, you know, I have my my set of tricks that I know how to do. And But how I present them, it can be wildly different and so with kids you know i have to keep a filter on what i say and make sure i i don't cross that line with adults i let the filter's gone you know if like sometimes bubble tricks don't work and you know i have to learn how to use comedy to get myself out of a situation you know uh and you know but with adults i can just say you know it doesn't work i can just go fuck which is always really funny, you know, to have a children's entertainer be able to say that, you know, and, and like, well, every once in a while, uh, Yeti and I do a show. Yeti's my wife. She's a musician and she often plays with me during shows with kids, but we do have this one show called Bubble and Squeeze, uh, which is a play on words. There's a famous dish in England called Bubble and Squeak. <laughs> and I perform in England a lot. So we're very familiar with Bubble and Squeak. We eat it all the time. It's basically eggs mixed up with whatever was left over from dinner last night. And um, uh, so we called the show Bubble and Squeeze because she, among other things, plays accordion. So it makes a lot of sense in England, but nobody ever heard of it over here. Uh, but we, we perform that show once in a while at our local theater up in Portland, the Clinton Street Theater. And uh, the last time we performed up there, you know, it was at night. First of all, that's different. Adult shows can be at night where kids shows are always in the daytime. And, uh, you know, I had a beer while I was setting up and then, uh, I had another beer. And then as I was going on stage, the guy at the front desk said, Oh, here, have another one. So I rarely am drunk for a kid's show, but I was a little bit, you know, toasted, uh, for this adult show and, and, you know, it, it helped with the improv and, you know, I mean, by the end of the show, I was actually, you know, really loose and, and you know, I kicked over the bucket of bubbles and, and I mean, it all became incredibly funny. As you're, as you're performing and as this, this toy company is growing, did, did you ever like get torn between one or the other or was it all kind of cohesive and? No, I mean, I would, whenever I was offered a gig to perform, I would do it, you know, and the work could do, be done later. You know, I can, I can do paperwork and computer work anytime. 
if somebody's going to pay me to go have fun, then, you know, I'll, I'll take the gig. And I started getting more and more gigs. And by that time, you know, I had over 100 products distributed around the world. And you know, it was like I was working all the time because I had all the factories in China. And, you know, I have nine to five job, you know, running the toy company. And at 5 p.m. is 9 a.m. in Hong Kong. Sure. So then I have all communications with Hong Kong, you know. And uh, so work was all the time. You know, I mean, the company, I mean, by today's standards, we were a teeny little nothing company, but we were doing a couple million a year in sales and, you know, it was full on and I had a lot of people working for me. And so then I had to manage people, which I wasn't good at. There's a lot of stories there that I, I'm not going to get into. Sure. That was not fun. And, uh, so, uh, no, I mean, I I would just perform whenever I could. And I, luckily, uh, I mean, it wasn't a good thing, but when 9-11 happened and the stock market crashed, uh, all my customers went bankrupt because uh, they were all building up their stock. There were all these toy stores, uh, chains of stores, kind of educational toy stores that are all gone now. Yep, but were. there were thousands of stores and, and you know, maybe 20 different chains uh, that all had like a hundred stores and they were called things like nature company, natural wonders, imaginarium, noodle, cadoodle, zany, brainy store of knowledge, world of science, you know, and a whole bunch more. And they were building up their portfolio. And then the stock market crashed after nine 11 and they all were gone. Wow. They're all gone. Uh-huh. There's none of them left. And, um, so I lost my customer base and another company offered to take over license all my products and i was like oh thank you thank you this is the greatest thing because sure. then i had an income and i completely switched over to being a performer full-time wow that was 2001. did you feel a sense of relief when that happened oh god yeah because you know like I invented all of my products. It wasn't like I was just a businessman. I, I had my heart behind all those products. And the toy business is a fashion industry. You have to have new stuff every year. The toy companies don't want to keep selling the same. In Europe, they do. They'll sell the same stuff over and over. But in the States, uh, you know, they got, it's like fashion. You know, they, they need new toys every year. Yeah. They'd come to the booth at the New York Toy Show. What's new? What's new? What do you got that's new? And so I'd have to have new stuff. And, you know, I could only come up with a few ideas and actually produce them and make the molds. And it's a huge amount of work to create a thing. And so I'd go to, to China and I'd find other stuff. I didn't actually invent all the toys, but, you know, I'd, I'd find stuff and package it in my packaging or I'd get other people to invent stuff. Did injection molding on this stuff? We did injection molding. We did rotational molding. Uh, I had one product was made out of metal and glass. That wasn't a bubble toy. It was a, a desk, like an executive desk toy. And it's the only one that's still out there on the market. It's called Euler's Disc. Although a lot of people call it Euler's Disc. It's spelled E-U-L-E-R. But it's pronounced Euler's Disc. He was a famous Swiss mathematician. Euler's for- formula, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the guy. And it, so this disc was named after him. Uh, a friend of mine... Uh, he's a rocket scientist, Joe Bendick. He, he came up with this thing and patented. And it's basically if you take a coin and put it on its edge and spin it, and it goes zzz, 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 as it falls down. 
Well, he he maximized that, and he it's like a hockey puck shaped steel uh, chrome plated steel disc, and it's got a special uh, radius that so it spins longer than any other radius would spin. And you put it on its edge and spin it, and it, it goes for like three minutes, and it gets going like 150 miles an hour. And it will walk off the edge of the table, so we had to put it on a concave mirror. You know, those mirrors where you look really big when you sure. look into it. He came to me, and I said, okay, let's make this thing. I think the nature company would love this. And uh, so we had to make these concave mirrors. It turns out it's illegal to make them in the States because the process to make them is causes some kind of pollution, I think. So it was the first thing that I had to make offshore. And I, I met a guy who had made a huge amount of money making plastic bongs in the 70s. <laughs> and he introduced me to his friend uh, Hans, who lives in Taiwan and, and manufactures stuff. And so I went, you know, Hans, I, my friend hooked me up with Hans and I made a product in Taiwan, the first offshore thing. And then I realized, oh, that's the way to go. And I met another guy who introduced me to someone in Hong Kong. And then pretty soon I was making everything in, in China. I can't imagine some factory in Taiwan or China and, and you know, taking it very seriously and then shipping bongs to, to, the, to the States. That's Yeah, it was in the 70s, you know, and everybody was smoking weed. And then we found out about bongs and they were you know, originally made out of bamboo because he, he made a huge amount of money in bongs. Because back then there were these head shops, you know, it was like a new thing. Like the first one in San Francisco is called the Psychedelic Head Shop. And it's, uh, you can look it up on YouTube. There's like some videos of the place. And it was the first place where people could buy pipes and, and things like that, you know. And then it became an industry, you know, and they were all over the country. They couldn't sell weed legally, but they could sell all the accoutrements, you know. Unbelievable. They were fun shops. Like, you know, there'd always be incense burning and all these different pipes and everything. And then psychedelic posters and everything that, that, that potheads wanted. Were you on America's Got Talent? Yeah. Can't remember. I think they contacted me and they said, yeah, you know, we'll uh, make it so you don't have to line up with everybody and do the audition. And I was like, oh, yeah, TV sounds good. It'll be good publicity. It wasn't easy and it wasn't fun. Um, and then I went in the room and there were like these six very serious people and okay, show us what you can do. And I did all my bubble tricks and they said, well, those are great. We love them, but this is TV and it won't work on TV like it does just live. You, you need something that's got more, more pizzazz to it. So they said, you know, go home and make a 90 second video of something like better. So. I got my little VCR camera and I, I went in my basement and what I came up with was a, a giant bubble on a table and then another one on top of that and then a ring of bubbles around it. It's the basic the carousel bubble but a giant version of it and then the ring spins. And uh, so I do this in every show but this was a giant version on a table. And instead of helium, because, you know, when you stack the bubbles up, I think I made it three high and had two spinning discs, uh, you put helium in. And so instead of helium, I used hydrogen. And so I made this huge sculpture and I spun it around and I put smoke inside. And then I exploded it with one of those kind of electric match, you know, like a big fireplace electric lighter. And, uh, and they liked it. 
They said, okay, yeah, we want you to do that. And so I was used to using helium, but hydrogen was new to me. And so I, I was doing shows in LA. It was a few months later and it was time for the show. And so I drove there, had my hydrogen tank and I said, I can't have any wind because it'll just blow the bubbles away. And they said, well, we're, we have huge lighting in this theater, you know, for the TV, it's really hot. So we have air conditioning on max. I said, no, you have to have it off. And they said, okay, we'll put you on first and we'll have it off. And as soon as you're done, we'll turn it on. And I'm like, okay. So I get there and I load in and they go, okay, we're going to start in a couple hours. So I sat around for a couple hours and they said, okay, let's get your stuff on stage. You're first. So I set everything up and I, hydrogen was new to me and I had this regulator on the tank and hydrogen is way stronger than helium. So if you put too much hydrogen in a bubble, it doesn't sit on top of the other bubble. It just rises up and goes up to the ceiling. And so I had to really work to get that regulator exactly right on the hydrogen tank. And it would take me like five minutes to dial it in. And so I got it all set up and I got it dialed in and then it was all ready to go. And they said, okay, now, you know, go backstage and we'll call you when it's time. So like, four hours go by and I just sit there. I didn't, nobody told me I'd be sitting there that long. I didn't have a book or anything. And I was just bored, you know, just like sitting there like, God, when is this going to be done? And finally I go on and I'm in the theater and there's like 2,500 people. There's like eight cameras, lights everywhere. There's the three judges, you know, in their little seats, you know, I'm on the show. And I have 90 seconds to impress the judges. And I get out there and, you know, I do a little talking, you know, and said something stupid to the judges. I can't remember. And uh, it, was, it was like Piers Morgan and Sharon Osborne and, oh, what's that guy's name from Baywatch? Hasselhoff, David Hasselhoff. So, you know, I talk to the judges and then say, okay, okay, let's see what you're going to do. And I pick up the hydrogen and I start making the bubble and I start squirting the hydrogen in and the tank is off. They turned off my hydrogen tank. They didn't know. I guess they thought, oh, he left his hydrogen tank on. But they turned it off. And so, you know, I struggled. But, you know, as I said, it, it would take me five minutes to dial it in. And I, I couldn't get the hydrogen out at the right rate. And I had 90 seconds. And after like 40 seconds of me doing not much, Sharon Osborne dinged me. Piers Morgan dinged me. And I was done. So you get two dings, you're off the show. So that was the end of that. David Hasselhoff was really nice. And he said, hey, it looked like you were trying to do something, but you were having trouble. And I said, yeah, somebody turned off my hydrogen tank. And Piers Morgan said, if I had a gun, I would shoot you. And, and uh, you know, they try to make you mad. And then as you walk off stage, they put a microphone in your face. How do you feel about what Piers said? And, and and I hated the entire experience and I'm kind of glad that I didn't go any further because they, they, as soon as you're off stage, they just treat you like a piece of crap, you know, and it, it's the whole thing about it. It's just to sell beer and it's so fake. They got what they wanted and you're, you're done. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you, if you go on, they, maybe it gets better. I don't know, but I didn't enjoy any of it. And I've been asked to be on other shows since then, and I just, I'd rather just do live 
performances. Kind of medieval, like you're going up to the king and they're telling you to perform and you're, <laughs> you fucked it up and they... You know. Yeah, off with his head. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it's it's just so phony. I've been on a few other TV shows, you know, like morning talk shows and things, and it's, it's, it's okay. It's still TV. It's, I don't like it. It, it's not I like live performance how do you how do you feel about things like social media versus mainstream television do you think it's becoming the same thing well you know I mean social media anybody can go out there and do something so it's democratized it anybody yeah yeah here we are <laughs> right <laughs> so you know it's open to anybody uh but there you know I mean it's still it's not a live show you're still connected to all this uh tech in order to see it you're not interacting in 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 real with people totally in real life uh and it's not real it's it's something you watch on a screen and i I, i'm guilty i get stuck if i'm tired and i start looking at instagram it's like you know 45 minutes can go by and i'm like click 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 flick flip flip ha 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 flip 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 ha 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 you know but it's uh it definitely takes you away from reality yeah and and any kind of you know true like spiritual uh uh life it's it's yeah it's it's not it's not it's not living anything you you're you know i don't know i like listening to books and things podcasts you know it's it's nice Thanks. Thanks for saying that. You, know, you saved yourself right there. <laughs> what do you think is the most powerful thing about, you know, in-person performance that, you know, I, it's, I mean, it's hard to like put that into language, right? But like, you know, is it a, does it change you as a, as an audience member or as a performer to, to be there with other people? Well, it's like when I was talking about when I was at Camp in a Rainbow and, and in, like you would learn how to juggle and then you get on stage and juggle. You know, and and there's interaction. There's other people, like, there, and uh, there's something happens when you're on stage in front of people. There, and what, like, it, when it's good, everybody is so focused. Everybody, the whole room is all focused on the same thing. The artist is focused, and the audience is focused, and and we're all connected. And there's a a feeling that that you can't get through through media, through sitting alone in your home watching a screen. Even if it's Zoom and you're all watching the same screen, you're, there's, you, you miss that feeling. Totally. And it's ineffable. I don't think there's words for it. But when people are gathered together, all focused on the same thing, everything else is forgotten. The whole world, everything else is gone and you're all you know, locked in a, in a, a focus. And it's magic. It's, it's, uh, I'm totally addicted. I do, I'm the hardest working man in the bubble business. I do, I do, you know, I don't know, 200 shows a year. You travel around the world. Yeah, too. I just got back from England two days ago. I'm totally jet lagged at this moment. I just, uh, before I left, I did eight shows in, in five days and uh, in two cities. And then I flew to England and I did 14 shows in, in 16 days in 12 cities. And I'm back here. I have three days off and I'm kind of missing it. 
That's amazing. I mean, you do all this booking yourself too, right? I mean, you... Uh, in the States, I do most of my own... I actually rent the theaters, you know, because I can't get a, an agent. In England, I have an agent. I have a manager. Uh, it's a theater-going culture there, and people, people have a lot more time off. Like, uh, they get a lot of weeks off of school, a lot of uh, holiday, and the parents tend to take those weeks off too, so I can do a show... Uh, for nine days in a row, two weekends and, and the whole week, and I can fill theaters and I get more adults than kids because parents take time off to be with their kids. Wow. There's beautiful theaters, and here I can't I can't get an agent, uh, and so I just rent the theaters, and it's fine. It's a, a, I still sell out. I just work on weekends. And you fill it yourself. You market it. Often I have to sell the tickets and even take the tickets seems totally insane to like say oh I'm, i want to go traveling and then you what you book a ticket you book the thing yourself and then you fill it on your own accord and then you show up and, and the, now you've got a road show going how did you get started uh you know i got started because i went to the edinburgh fringe festival and uh anybody can perform there. it's the biggest arts festival in the world and nowadays there's about 3,500 shows it's the entire month of august it's actually like 26 days. And so you find a theater and you guarantee them a certain amount of seats will be sold. Usually it's 40%. So if you don't sell 40% of the seats, you have to pay. Uh, so a lot of people lose, lose their shirts, you know. Uh, but, you know, people just want to perform. Artists, they need it, you know. And, and, and it's great experience because you, you do 26 days in a row. And so, you know, if you want to hone a show, you, you've, you know, you know you're going to do it every day and you don't have to travel. You're there. You're in Edinburgh and you just get a place and you every day you have your show. Maybe you have two shows. And uh, so I did that about 17 years ago and my show was a big hit. I found a 100-seat theater. After 11 days, we added a second show. Every show sold out. And then I moved to a 150-seater and I did two shows a day. And did that every year for five years. And then I moved into, now I'm in a 420-seater. And I just do one show a day. and But every show sells out. And so, you know, everyone in the UK goes to this festival. All the bookers, all the agents, everybody. And so if you become successful there, then the bookers are fighting over you. And the theaters all want to book you. And so I've, I was successful. And so I performed over there a lot. And then I, you know, I tried to, I don't want to travel all, all over there all the time. You know, I love it, but it's, it's hard. So I've tried for years to get a booker in the USA. Can't do it. And we don't have that kind of culture. Well, first of all, the cities are more spread out. Like over there, you, there's a lot more people and they've, they've been, doing theater for thousand years and they it's in their culture and they have these christmas pantos that uh parents bring their families to and they've been doing it for generations and the the so they get used to going to to the theater and it's a thing they do and the cities the city councils support the theaters so then the theaters can pay the the artists much more of the of the ticket price where here theaters are just 
struggling constantly 503c or whatever it is you know the nonprofits and trying to get grants and trying to get money somehow because the government doesn't support the arts like it does over there that's true yeah i mean we're at the epitome of capitalism over here I mean, we have to keep propping it up you know we have to keep finding new ways to get money you know get to generate income you know because all the basic needs have been filled so now you know it's all these we have to market all these things that we don't actually need anymore you know and, and they have to convince people that they need them and that's a whole market of advertising and i mean it's it's absurd and it's not sustainable almost like we're neglecting our human needs in favor of this sort of created needs created needs yeah 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 there's that old saying you know create a need and fill it and now it's been generations of need creating when you think about your your kind of creative life are there any trade-offs that you had to make that maybe uh an average person wouldn't think about uh probably uh i've never really thought about that i'm not an average person i don't know what average person have to think about (laughs) i've never been an average person I had to create my own industry. You know, I, I didn't fit into anything, you know? So I, I was I was severely a lost cause before I found this bubble thing. I didn't, I was depressed and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I mean, I, my father had kind of insisted I go to college, but I, I he wanted me to be a doctor. I'll tell you a little story if you don't mind. Uh, We're here for the story. And I did this, I said earlier, I was in the special uh, biomed program in high school. And so my father got me a summer position at the pathology department at Mount Zion Hospital uh, to work in a real hospital. In, you know, because I'd been in this whole school program about working in the medical field. And so uh, it was like summer of 74, I guess. And he, we were living at the little house up in, in Ignacio. And my dad would come in every morning, go to work. So I'd go in with him and I'd go to the pathology department and he introduced me to the pathologist and he explained pathology and I became fascinated, you know, because they basically take tissues from the body yep. uh, and they make little slides and then they look at it under the microscope and they first they have to dye it all these different colors and then they can see the different aspects of each cell and see what's wrong. And so I, I was a little, I was kind of a stoner and we'd look at these cells and they were like totally psychedelic art, you know, like dyed all these purples and greens and blues and oranges. And you could see all the little aspects of a kidney cell and how the liquid travels through and gets filtered and stuff. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is cool. I like this. Plus pathologists have a nine to five job. They're not like gone all the time because they just work in a lab. And, and then there, you know, there's a frozen section they do when somebody's on an operating table and they need to see a slide and they send the, they send the tissue culture up to the lab and they freeze it instantly. And, and then they make a slide and they dye it. It's not as good as one that they take a lot of time, but they can do this thing in a few, in like a minute. And then they can tell the doctor, okay, this has cancer. This doesn't have cancer. Take it out. And so you're, you're like saving people's lives, like in, in the moment. And so it's an exciting, exciting place and I was really looking forward and I, I got put in charge of dyeing all these slides and I was, this was, it was heaven. I really liked it. Uh, and then one day they said, okay, it's your time to go do an autopsy. 
because they also, you know. That's a cadaver lab. Yeah, yeah. So I had to go down in the basement, and, and it was a combination of a dark room and a cadaver lab, and there were cadavers all over the place. And I was like a 16-year-old kid, and I have never seen a dead person. And then I was surrounded by them, and then they wheeled this guy out, and they, you know, they put him on the table, and he was all jaundiced, and they mentioned who he was. I never heard. He was supposedly he was a writer who lived in Sausalito. And so, you know, we cut him open. I'm going to leave out the gory details, but there were lots oh, sure. of, lots of, well, okay. They took a saw, a little circular electric saw, and they saw it right down from his sternum all the way below his belly button, and then across the, his waist and across his chest, and they opened up the body cavity. And my family's Jewish. I don't think we were believers. I'm, I'm not, I'm not religious in any way, but we went to temple and, uh, you know, they would have the Torah and the Torah is in this thing called the Ark. Uh, and they'd have all these songs and this prayers and chanting. And it would be a huge moment when they open up the Ark and then the Torahs are in there. There's the holy books and the scrolls. And when they opened up this guy's body, it was, it just reminded me, it was like, wow, it's just like these two big doors opening, but the Torah's in there. And so they... They, but it wasn't Torres in there. It was just all his his guts and parts and things. Innards, and, yeah. And, uh, you know, the woman, the pathologist, she was a, a little gray-haired woman, and she would just pull out, here's the kidney, and we'd hand it around, and we'd cut a little bit off to send up to the lab, and then here's the, you know, liver, and here's the spleen, and here's this and that, and they took out everything. She even reached in and pulled his balls out, you know, we handed them around the table. There were all these interns. There were like six of us. And so, yeah, there's the ball and here's the liver. And uh, I was in shock the whole time. I mean, I'd never seen a dead person. And here I am holding this cirrhosis liver in front of me, you know. And so, salt and pepper liver. And it wasn't brown like a liver should be. It was black and white. And it's like, obviously, you know, this is how he died. Salt and pepper liver. And cut off a little piece, and th then they threw everything back in, sewed him up, and then uh, they cut across his skull from ear to ear. And I was standing at his feet at that moment. And when they pulled the two halves of the skull apart, his the towel he had a towel on his face. It 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 fell off, and he was looking at me as they lifted his brain out of his skull. And I'll never forget that face. I can see it right now. And I, and that was it. I was done. I was like, nope, I'm not going to be a doctor. I can't treat a body like this. I cannot be a doctor. I'm through. And I left. And there was a blues festival in Golden Gate Park. And I like pretty much ran from Mount Zion Hospital to Golden Gate Park. And I, my friends had wine. And I just guzzled wine until I got sick. And it was a traumatic time. And, uh, and then years later, I was studying... Well, I was sitting in a field of ice plant looking over the cliffs in San Diego with my Latin book in my lap, watching the hang gliders over the ocean. And and it, 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 I had a lucid recall of this moment when they pushed this guy into the room and they said his name. But by then I had actually read his books and I knew who it was. It, it was, uh, oh God. <laughs> Alan Watts. Alan Watts? It was Alan Watts, the famous Zen Philosopher. writer. Yeah, yeah, speaker. And by, I, by that time, I'd read his books and listened to his speeches, and I was 
you know, a huge fan. He was Whoa. dead, obviously. I did his, his autopsy. <laughs> they were dismembering Alan Watts's body and skull, and that's what kind of led you away from medicine yeah. as a profession? Yeah, that wow. was... Wow. He changed my life. Alan Watts had I a met him. huge impact yeah. on your I life I didn't shake his hand, but I shook his liver. <laughs> that is a wild story, man. Yeah. What do you remember most about Alan? His brain or his heart? His face. When they lifted his brain out and I saw I saw his face, that was that was the moment that I was like, decision made. I'm done here. I didn't I didn't go back. That was the end of my work at the at the lab. I was nope, don't want to do this. Did he have a big heart? <laughs> I don't remember his heart. I remember his his testicles, and I remember his because it was just so. I felt so weird when she took his testicles out, and uh, I remember his liver because that's how that's what killed him. And, and the fact that in between when when I when it happened and when I recalled who it was, I'd read all his books and I'd become like a huge, uh, you know, like devotee of of his speeches. You can get all his his speeches online probably i used to listen to the cassettes wow. but you know i'd listened to hundreds of them he was really popular yeah he still is he's come back post-mortem he's even more popular i oh. think yeah 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 the the kids today you know i mean there, there's all these videos of you know like animations of him and stuff yeah he's a great speaker he but he was a total drunkard i mean he he i learned this later you know he at the podium he'd stand there and he'd have a jug of vodka, you know, and while he was speaking, he would just guzzle vodka. Really? He was a massive, massive no alcoholic. He was an ordained minister too, right? Didn't he go to... I think he started out as like a, a Methodist or something in England, and then he moved to America, and then he went to Japan and studied Zen, and so he, he was a real theologian, you know? He, he, he understood Eastern and Western traditions. Any guiding principles that you try to live your life by do you have any intentional well yeah you know i mean just like like so many people say just being in the moment you know uh and i, I the older i get the easier it is to be in the moment you know a lot of the bullshit that you go through when you're younger it's like okay, i've worked that out uh my hormone levels have settled down you know, my needs are much less, you know, just surviving is, uh, it's pretty good. You know, being healthy is, uh, is a, a boon, you know, cause I'm 65. So, you know, you start to face the fact that time is very short, you know, hopefully I have, you know, more time cause I'm, I'm working better and more than I ever have. You're, you're all over the place. Yeah. And you know, but it's not going to go on forever. So uh you know i really have to enjoy and you know i i'm in a really good place i mean i'm glad i'm glad the pandemic happened because i had a break and i was able to stop and i i started doing other art forms and and uh making videos playing music uh, writing and so i know that when it time to stop and I don't I just can't keep going I, I can fall back and, and life will still be good and fun and interesting uh, 
but it, this has been a slingshot now that the pandemic's kind of come to a close hopefully uh i'm i'm working more than i doing the kind of work i want more than ever and uh it's it's exciting you feel like it keeps you full of life and energy to keep doing the work that you love yeah i mean like i said being in the moment is is what it's all about bubbles bubbles teach you that you know it's it's your breath you're breathing you're capturing your breath and uh each you know when you're looking at a bubble there's like time goes away it's it teaches you that everything is uh, only here for a short time really appreciate it and um uh being on stage same thing it's it's just so magical and so special and time disappears and i'm a different guy i don't i don't know who that guy is but he's he, i like him i i like being that guy i seem when i'm on stage there's, there's that magic that connection with people i seem to know what to say like i just am able to improv the right thing at the right time you know uh i've become a bit of a of a master but not to the point where uh where i know what i'm doing i still i still don't know what i'm doing i still when i started this bubble thing i thought well i'll do this until i figure out what i'm really doing and now 40 years later i still feel the same way you know like i haven't planned anything and i think that really helps you be in the moment because i don't have to stick to a plan i don't have to plan anything else uh things work a lot better when I get my brain out of the way. Uh, and when, when you do something for a long time, you get a feel for it and you learn how to do it. So you can't describe what you're doing, but you've mastered something. And I think I, I'm close to that. I see mastery takes a lifetime. Yeah. And I've I've been doing this forty years. That's uh, that's uh, you know. Hopefully, it's not a lifetime. It's half a lifetime. Half a lifetime. <laughs> You're not even halfway there. I don't know. I could go now. I'm happy. I'm I'm I, I'm happy, and and I I've never actually been happier. Do you, Do you have any like, secrets to keeping life interesting or meaningful or? Uh, I think. Maybe not having secrets is the way to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, being real and uh, breathing, appreciating. You know, like one thing that I've learned from doing bubbles is that air is a really thick substance. If you make a bubble and you wave back and forth over the bubble, you push the air out of the way and the bubble rises up into that vacuum. And it makes you realize that this stuff that we live in, that we take for granted, is a very, very thick soup. And we're like fish don't understand that they're underwater. It's just they've always been underwater. It's always there. And they pretty much take it for granted. And, the, you know, just the air is something we don't think about. It's always been there. If it wasn't there, we, we wouldn't exist, you know. And so, like... If you just take a second and realize how incredible it is, and then you breathe it in, you know, and you do that for your entire life from the second you're born until the second before you die, uh, it's it's a magical substance, and everything everything is it is magical.
Now, I don't think that all the time, but since you asked the question, you know, I think that's the secret that, you know, when you realize that, how can you be, spend your time being upset and depressed, you know? Louis, dude, thanks a lot. This has been a pleasure and super interesting stories that you've shared and wish you well on your, your travels. I hope, uh, hope we see each other again soon. Yeah. Thank you, Dylan. Yeah. This is great. Thanks, man. Yes. Awesome. Ciao. Ciao.